support. Well, good morning. Here we go. The seven feasts. We began our series last week looking at the feasts and discussing how these seven feasts of, of Israel that God gave to them, these appointed times, how they relate to you and me today, what they have to do with us. And so uh, last week we looked firstly at the idea of understanding the biblical day, um, in particular for these uh, feast days of how the day actually begins at nighttime. So we already have to flip our thinking upside down because you got up this morning at whatever time and you thought the day had begun. But in Hebrew thinking, the day had begun last night at dusk. All right, so we got to flip our thinking with that. Okay, then we talked about uh, the week and we talked about how the fact that when God says the Sabbath, okay, that's the seventh day. It's what we would call Saturday. It's always been that, always will be that. It's not going to change. We meet together as Christians on the first day of the week, and the reason we do that is not because the Sabbath changed, but because the first day is when Jesus rose from the dead. We're celebrating the resurrection when we meet on Sunday. So Easter is not the one time a year we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We actually celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday when we get together. That's what we're doing. It does not replace the Sabbath either. We looked at Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, and saw how the Sabbath goes way back. This is before the law was even given. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is based on God's creation. He says, by the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from his work of creation. And the word holy means separated, different, distinct. And so God said, this day is different. He created in six, and on the seventh, he finished, he rested. And so that's where the idea of Sabbath comes from. It's not from the Ten Commandments. That's just a reiteration after, all right? And so this idea is before the Ten Commandments, and um, it is an idea of putting God first and demonstrating that you're not trusting in yourself to get through life, but you're trusting in God to get through life. Now, in our culture, um, it's easy to not do that. It's easy to just trust in ourselves. But let me make a quick analogy here. Uh, the Israelite society was an agri uh, agricultural-based society, and so they planted and they harvested. Okay, So one day a week, it was no work. But there was also a Sabbath year. That's where they didn't work the land for a year. The land got a rest. Okay? Now, I mentioned this last week, but that's a trust factor with God. All right? Now keep this in mind. Trust is going to become huge with our discussion today. You had to trust that God was going to provide for you even though you weren't planting that year. So let's go 21st century. All right. So we live in a culture that has become, over the last 50 years in America, a 24-7 culture. All right? There's second, first, second, and third shifts. There's overnight. There's double. There's, there's all this. Some people work 48-hour shifts. Okay. So there's all sorts of stuff in our culture. What you got to wrestle with, what I got to wrestle with, is how do we take this understanding of Sabbath and trusting God and not become a seven-day-a-week, 24-7, 365, always-on, always-working person? Because what that says is we're doing it all. What we got to get back to, and we mentioned this last week, that this was actually a semi-evangelistic tool as well. You're telling the rest of the world, no. I don't eat, breathe, and sleep work. I eat, breathe, and sleep God. 
and God will take me through. So I don't need to work 24-7. Yes, I need to work. Don't be a slacker. Okay, there's plenty of verses on that. Okay, the lazy man, the slacker, all right? The man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. All right, there's plenty of scriptures. But most of us, okay, we tend to the workaholic, type A personality. We're the opposite, all right? <clears throat> then we saw that God said in Leviticus 23.3, work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred assembly. You're not to do any work the Sabbath to the Lord wherever you live. And so we saw that, this is not Genesis anymore. This is not Leviticus. The people are getting ready to go into the promised land. And God says, listen, whether you're in the garden or whether you're in Babylon or whether you're in Canaan, wherever you are, Sabbath, day seven. Remember, repeat. Then in Leviticus 23, which is where these feasts are categorized for us, we saw that Leviticus 23 starts out with the phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses. And we saw that if you want a book of the Bible where it repeatedly says the Lord spoke, and you want the words, like, think about quotation marks, you want to see what did God actually say a lot, go read Leviticus. I know, you're like, what? Yeah, go read Leviticus, because it says it all the time. Because God spoke many, many times, and specifically to Moses, and then he said it back to the people. Then we looked at the biblical calendar, which we're going to, look at every single week because we have to understand it. We saw that there are different months than what you and I are used to. And so again, we've got to flip our thinking. All right? We had to flip it on the, the, the time the day starts. We have to flip it on, on the week. Now we've got to flip it on the months as well. And so while right now is the month of October, if you look at the bottom of the circle, you see that we're in what month biblically? Tishri, right? Tishri, right? Month number seven. So it's not October, month 10, and it's not 20,000 or 2016. It is instead Tishri, the seventh month. And what you'll see is that there are three different feasts that are aligned with Tishri trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. That was day one. We talked about that last week. And after that, there's these seven days of awe, and then the day of atonement, okay, was. The next one, and lastly, is Tabernacles, which covers a whole week long. We'll talk about that one next week. And so we have to get this wrapped around our head as well. Then we mentioned the idea that three of these feasts were times of pilgrimage. They would make the long journey to Jerusalem to worship together. Okay, and so I have them in three columns here, Passover, Pentecost, and Trumpets. And really, if you look at the two outer columns, what they have is there's a couple of the days that are just a one-day celebration, and then there is a seven-day celebration. So in reality, each of these that you would go to Jerusalem for, you're not going for like a one-day deal. I mean, it's, it's multiple days to get there. You're walking. You're not flying, okay? And so they are going to take this long journey, and then they're going to spend at least a week in Jerusalem celebrating what God has done and what God is going to do, all right? And so... We talked also about the fact that the biblical holidays point toward Jesus Christ. And we looked at the fact that the four spring holidays, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost, all, right, all pointed to what Jesus did when he came the first time and he fulfilled them. And so they would go to Jerusalem for these events right here, and they would celebrate. 
The Passover, Jesus died on the cross. The unleavened bread, he was buried. The first fruits, he rose. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And then, after that, 50 days later, Pentecost, and then the Holy Spirit was given. The book of Acts tells us about that. Now, the fall feast, which is what we're looking at right now, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles, these are the things that I think that, based on Scripture, will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back the second time. He came the first time to save. He's coming the second time to judge and put things in order. All right? So, look at trumpets, which is what we talked about last week. All right? The Feast of Trumpets. With that and the shofar blowing, all right, the ram's horn that they blew these trumpets, all right, it was a call. It was calling the people together. And oftentimes the trumpets in Scripture are related to a war cry. And so it wasn't some casual thing. Think about the hurricane sirens or tornado sirens, okay, air raid sirens. They're going off, and it is something that everybody's going to not just stay in your bed over. You're going to get up, and you're going to congregate. All right, and so it is a call to action. It's a call to get up. And after the trumpets were blown on the Day of Atonement, there was the ten days of awe. And so the ten days of awe would have been what was transpiring over this past week and the next couple of days until the Day of Atonement comes. And on those ten days of awe, what you would be doing is repenting of sin. You would be evaluating your past year and what you've been doing and how you've been living your life. And you've been getting right with God. We looked at the two aspects of repentance and respect. Respect of God and awe of God and what he's going to do. And then we quoted or looked at Revelation chapter 20 verse 15 as we finished last week. And we saw that it said anyone not found written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. So yeah, Jesus is coming back. The Bible says the trumpet will sound when he's coming back. The Bible says all will see him in the air when he's coming back. The Bible says in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord when he comes back. And Revelation says that if your name's not in the book of life, you get thrown in the lake of fire. You will not be in the kingdom. So we're looking at a period when Jesus comes back that is going to be a judgment, a cleansing, and a setting things right to the whole creation. And so with that review, today... We look at the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the highest holy day in the Jewish calendar. It's the highest one. It's the biggest deal. It's very similar in some respects to Passover. Passover when Jesus dies on the cross to pay for our sins. But the Day of Atonement kind of piggybacks on that is, is what I'm going to say. And so this morning we're going to look at sin and sacrifice and the Savior and salvation. And as we look at these, I want us to think first of the four, which I know we haven't gone in detail, but the four feasts from the spring and now these three from the fall, starting with last week, the trumpets. And so look at Leviticus 23 with me. Leviticus 23 and I have put on your handout for you, on the back of it, it has Leviticus 23, verses 26 to 32. It's all written there for you. So you can keep referring to it if you need to. You can write on it, put notes, etc. Um, and then the front of the page is blank for you to take notes. All right? But Leviticus 23, starting in verse 26, it says, The Lord again spoke to Moses, 
So here we go, quotation marks. God is speaking. What's God saying? Do we care what God says? We need to. He says, the tenth day of this seventh month. So what day? The tenth. Okay? The tenth is the day of atonement. You are to hold a sacred assembly and practice self-denial. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord. On this particular day, you are not to do any work, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for yourselves before the Lord your God. If any person does not practice self-denial on this particular day, he must be cut off from his people. I will destroy among his people anyone who does any work on the same day. You are not to do any work. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations wherever you live. It will be a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. You are to observe your Sabbath from the evening of the ninth until the following evening, the evening of the tenth. Now, I didn't count them up, but did he say a lot of times it's a Sabbath and don't work? Yeah, he did. Okay, so he's pretty serious about it. All right, it's a Sabbath. Don't work. All right. Instead, what are you going to do on this day of atonement? Well, remember the biblical calendar. Okay, we got to keep going back to the biblical calendar and thinking of how they fit together. So the Day of Atonement is coming right after trumpets, when everyone has been called together by the, the shofar or the trumpet blowing. And so we're getting together, and it's going to come right before tabernacles. Okay, Tabernacles or booths okay, is a week-long celebration where they actually went and lived in huts. We'll talk about that next week. All right? So they lived for a week in a hut to remind them of how they lived in the wilderness. And so as we... Move towards that, and we're coming out of the trumpets, okay, when everyone was called together, like the guy in the middle of the, the picture with the shofar blowing, all right? We are going to look at the aspects of how is my sin taken care of? That's what this is going to be about. How is my sin taken care of? Because remember, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And right in the middle of the five is what book? Leviticus. Okay? It's the highest. Okay? I know. We don't ever read it. I've told you a dozen times. That's the first book little Jewish kids would memorize. Okay? They teach it to them. Why? Because it's the words of God. It's got the Day of Atonement. And it's all about loving God and loving your neighbor. And so in this book of Leviticus, God has given these instructions. And he's given them because at the end of Exodus... He had given instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a place for God to meet with his people. So he's freed them from slavery, just like that song we sang today. All right? He freed them from slavery where they've been for 400 years in Egypt. They've come out. They've crossed the Red Sea. God says, build this tabernacle so I will be with you. Remember how he was with them? A cloud and a fire, right? Cloud by day and a fire by night. He led them. And so he leads them out, and now he says... I'll, I'll be with you. Well, how, how, do, how do I be with you? How does he meet with them? Build me a tent of meeting. That's the other name for tabernacle in scripture, the tent of meeting. God's going to meet with his people. Okay, well, that's a little bit of a problem. Because ever since Adam and Eve, every single person born is born a sinner. And remember how we said God is holy? Yeah, that means he's separate. See, God has no sin. God can't be joined with sin. That's a problem. 
So how does one who has never sinned and is perfect, God the creator, meet or get in the same space as someone who's a sinner? You see, that's our dilemma. And that's what the tabernacle is about. And that's what the Day of Atonement is about. And that's what these animal sacrifices are about. And ultimately, that's what Jesus is about. Because we've got to figure out how to bridge that gap, how to get rid of the problem that's in there. The sin is the problem. All right? But it's all over us. It's all inside of us. It's everywhere. And it's not just inside you and all over you. It's in the world. We just experienced a hurricane. Right? Why do we have hurricanes in the world? Because the creation is cursed. Now, why is the creation cursed? Because Adam and Eve rebelled against God and threw everything into turmoil. See, yeah, it separated them from God, but that's not the only thing it did. It threw the whole creation into turmoil. Now, this word sin, it's a little tiny word, three letters. What letters in the middle? Yeah, so generally speaking, you're the biggest problem, okay? Sin? Yeah, you. You're the problem with sin, okay? But... Let's unpack it because it's, it's a little more than that. All right? There's over 50 different words and phrases that are used to describe sin and wrongdoing and guilt in the Bible. So you can't just look up one word, sin, for instance. All right? Especially if you're going to the Hebrew and Greek. There's over 50 different words that talk about sin and the effects and consequences of it. If you narrow it down for the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five, Genesis to Deuteronomy, there's three that are used a lot. And those three are going to be a little bit of where our focus is going to be on today. Okay? All three of these words, though, can occur in contexts that describe wrongs committed against God or others. So in other words, it's not just one word that means, like, I sinned against God, or I sinned against Stanley, or I sinned against Peter. No, these words can be used interchangeably. All right? There's a whole bunch of verses, which obviously we're not going to go through them all today. There's, there's also sins that are unintentional and sins that are intentional. Now, some of you really need to grasp this point here, okay? Now, you could be speeding on purpose on the highway, okay? The speed limit says 65. The signs are you pass it every six miles, and you know it's 65. And you're going 85 because that's what you want to go, and you're going 85, period. That's your choice, right? So you're choosing to speed, right? Or... The 65-mile-an-hour speed limit sign is still there every six miles, and you pass it every six miles, but you're not paying attention to anything because you're having a conversation, you're listening to this, you're doing whatever. And so you keep passing the 65-mile-an-hour speed limit sign, and you never paid any attention, and you're going 73. But you don't realize it. You're just cruising along, having fun, right? So which of the two people are breaking the law? They both are. It doesn't matter if you know or don't know. The law is the law, and you broke it, right? So here's the deal. If you sin, you sin. It doesn't matter if you know it or don't know it. You sin. There's different types of sin. There's sin, like we just said. You purposely go past the speed limit, right? Or there is unintentional, where you didn't mean to, all right? And there's a whole spread of stuff in between there, all right? Sin is a huge, messy, big situation, all right? Now... The other thing with sin is that the word can be used to refer to your actual act of sin or the consequences of your sin or the process in between or any or all of it. 
So this is where it gets a little more confusing for us reading English translations is that's not always made clear. And I'll show you some examples of that and maybe help you change what you used to think some passages meant based on this. At the end of the day, though, okay, what does sin boil down to? You talk to people, you ask, ask somebody, you know, what was Adam and Eve's real sin? What's the deal that they did? Was, was it pride? That's what's mentioned a lot of times, okay? You know, Satan had pride, he rebelled. Adam and Eve had pride, they wanted to do their own thing. That's definitely a part of it, because what's the middle letter in sin? Yes, at least in English, right? It's not in Hebrew, by the way, or in Greek. But in English it is, so we can use that. But at the end of the day, here's the issue. Think back to Adam and Eve. Okay? When God put them in the garden, he created everything to be good. In fact, very good at the end of Genesis 1. Everything was very good. And God puts the man and the woman in the garden. And he says they can enjoy all of it, but don't eat from that one tree. And then he gives them... Some responsibilities. You're, you're to be bored. Rule this place. So think about it. Okay, some of you have imaginations. Some of you have wanted to be like rulers or presidents or this or that. Imagine God created an entire place. It's called Earth. And then he put somebody, you, just pretend, on it and said, guess what? You get to be the president of the whole Earth. Like that's what just happened to Adam. He was created out of the dirt. He's put on the earth, and he gets to be the king, the, the mini-king, the, the president, the prime minister, whatever, of the whole thing. Yeah. Good question, but we have to cover that later. So Adam is put there, all right, and he has all of these things. And then what does he, what does he think? He gets someone to whisper in his ear. Yeah, but God's holding out on you. He's really not giving you everything good. So here is where the root creeps in. Adam stops trusting God. He has mistrust. You all know what mistrust is. Mistrust is when somebody says something to you and then you're thinking, yeah, I don't know if they really mean that. You know what I mean? They say, yeah, I'll show up to help you with that. And you're like, I don't know if they really will. On the contrary, if you have full trust in them and they say, I'll show up at 3 o'clock Saturday to help you, then you know what? They're coming Saturday at 3 o'clock, right? You plan on it. You know, you're going to order, order an extra pizza for them. You're going to get some extra lunch because they're going to be there. You know what I'm saying? You know. You plan on it. You bank on it. But if there's mistrust, no, not so much. So see, Adam and Eve have this mistrust. They're not sure they can trust God anymore. Is it really good for them not to eat that tree? Because, by the way, that tree looks really good. The fruit looks great. I mean, it wasn't rotten fruit. It looked great. And then they're being told, oh, but that's going to make you even more like God. Oh, well, really? Well, why didn't God tell me that? He's holding out on me? Oh, what else is he not telling me? You see, to answer your question kind of, Stanley, in a, in a short bit, is that it was a test in a sense. Are you going to trust me or are you not? And you get tested every day. And so this idea of trust is at the key or at the base of sin. Do you trust him or are you going to do your own thing? So that was Adam and Eve's primary error. Yeah, the I factors into it. The pride factors into it. I want to do my own thing. All right. So mistrust in God 
and then misplaced desire leads to disobedience. So see, they had this desire to become wiser and more like God. And so you got mistrust, not sure I can trust God. Um, so misplaced trust, then misplaced desire. My desire is to be more like God. And then what does that lead to? Disobedience. So if you want a math equation, you can say mistrust in God plus misplaced desire equals disobedience. I'll say it one more time because you should probably write it down. Mistrust in God plus misplaced desire equals disobedience. So you wonder why you disobeyed? Well, I, I just did it. No, you didn't really just do it, okay? Your trust wasn't in the right place and your desires weren't in the right place. So if you want to stop being a disobedient person, what do you need to fix? Your trust and desires. Exactly. Bingo. All right? So, as Jay Sklar, who is an eminent scholar on the book of Leviticus, says, Sin is sin because it is disobedience to the Lord, an outright act of treason against humanity's creator and king. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Okay? What's the penalty for treason right, in America? Prison or death, right? That's treason, right? You go against the government system, and what happens to you? Yeah. Okay. So how about God? Is he a little higher than, like, the government of the U.S.? Yeah. yeah, a lot higher? Yeah, you think? Like, not even the same league, right? Okay, so if that's what you get in a country for committing treason, right, do you think it might be a little bit more serious if you commit treason against God? Like treason, Kevin. Who commits treason? You do. Every time you sin, you're committing treason. Because who is the king of the universe? God is. And when you commit sin, what are you doing? You're rebelling against him because you don't trust him and you have your own desires. And so as you rebel against God, what you're doing is enacting treason against the king. Now, what happens to people that commit treason? Okay, so is it any wonder? That Paul says in Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and the wages of sin is what? Death, Romans 6.23. Yeah, that's what you get, death. You deserve it, right? You're a treasonous sinner. Now, when it comes to sin, though, it doesn't stop with you. Sin hurts other people. Sin is a dynamic living thing, and here's where your idea of sin and the biblical idea of sin don't fit together properly. We've been taught mostly that sin is breaking the law. It's this legal thing. Okay? So you go to court, you know, and you have your day in court, and God's going to say you're guilty because you broke his law. Well, that's all true, but it's not the whole truth. Sin is bigger than that. You see, sin doesn't end with that. Let's just go back to Adam and Eve for a minute. Did the sin end when Adam and Eve eating from the tree. No, it did not. Instead, here's what happened. They set in motion a domino effect. The snowball had already started rolling down the mountain, and pretty soon it's going to be an avalanche, and there's no stopping it. Why? Because sin is this living, dynamic, organic thing Okay, God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, 
all right? It's this like living thing that we set in motion, and it has already been set in motion. You were born with it set in motion, because who set it in motion? Adam and Eve, and it hasn't stopped. The snowball's been rolling, and the avalanche is just bigger and bigger all the time. And so here's what happens. You either contribute to the snowballing avalanche, or you help slow it down. That's it. Now, there is, there is a way to get it stopped, okay? And you have a little bit of um, ability to do that, but really you need an outside source to stop it, okay? To clean up the whole mess. It's kind of like um, the aftermath of a hurricane. Is it going to pick itself up? No. Somebody needs to go do something, right? That's why the day after a hurricane, what do you hear all day? Chainsaws, right? Why? They're cutting down all the trees that fell. They're moving them out of the way, right? So someone's coming in to clean up the mess. Well, that's what we need also. That's the same problem we have. Because you're right. You didn't start the mess, but you know what you did do? You added to the mess. So it's like, you know, you walk into your house, and um, it's already kind of a messy, okay? Somebody else was playing. They left out all their toys. They had their crayons. They left the crayons all over the the carpet, some of them are stuck down on the couch, a few of them are under the couch, you know. So, yeah, did you make the mess? Nope. But what do you decide to do? Oh, well, you're going to color too. So you get some crayons and you color with some, and then you just leave them on the table, and then a couple rolled off and fell under the table. So now you added some to under the table, and you got some on the table, and then you decide to, you know, go get a glass of OJ, and uh, whoops, you slip on one of the crayons, and you spill some OJ in the carpet. So what are you doing? You're adding to the mess. No, you didn't start the mess. You're just adding to the mess. Right? So that's what we're doing. That is the issue of sin. Okay? Sin hurts other people. It's this dynamic living thing. So look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. <clears throat> Leviticus 16, 21. It says, Aaron will lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, and he will confess over all Israelites' wrongdoings and rebellious acts, all of their sins. Now, this is chapter 16 of Leviticus. We're not going to read the whole chapter today, but if you want to know the chapter on the Day of Atonement, it's Leviticus 16. It covers the whole Day of Atonement, what happens, what has to be done, what the priests do, all the sacrifices. Now, these three words that are in bold print, wrongdoings, rebellious acts, and sins. These are the three words, okay? They're all different Hebrew words. These are the three words that are used most frequently in the first five books of the Bible to deal with sin. Okay? So wrongdoings, rebellious acts, and sins. In King James, you'll have uh, iniquities probably okay? instead of wrongdoings. So on the Day of Atonement, Aaron lays his hands on the head of a live goat and confesses over it all this wickedness. Okay, This is a word that means this whole spectrum that I'm talking about. All right, It doesn't stop when the sin stops. Okay, You set it in motion and it continues. That's what this is referring to. And so this wrongdoing or this wickedness is something that is going to snowball. It's a domino effect. All right? I'll give you some examples in just a minute. All right? And then the rebellion and then all, all of their sins. All right? Exodus 34 verse 7 has the same three words all packed together again. These are the two verses that have all three words put right there all together. Okay? God talks about maintaining his faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. There's your three words again. Now, get this. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, 
bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, this passage of scripture has bothered lots and lots of people over the years. Uh, the Holman translated consequences, which is pretty good because that's the word that I, I normally use to kind of explain this. And so I put it in italics there for you. What is God talking about here? He's talking about the way that sin works that you and I don't normally think about. You see, once you start the snowball rolling at the top of the mountain, what does it keep doing? It rolls down and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Once you push the first domino, what happens? They all come tumbling down, right? And so what God is saying is this, okay? You don't get punished by God for the sin that your parent committed, okay? Singular sin, okay? So your dad or your mom or your grandma or grandpa, they did something, okay? They, they robbed a bank, okay? You don't pay because they committed that sin, but you do pay. How do you pay? Well, you pay because they started the snowball rolling. You see, you don't have to go to prison because you didn't rob the bank, right? They did, right? But instead, you have to deal with the consequences. So just, and I'm just, I made that example up, but let's just use it. So if one of your parents robbed a bank and they go to prison, how do you pay? You're parentless, or at least one of them, right? You're paying. So your sin hurts other people. Now, that's not something that God came in and specifically said, I'm going to judge you because your parents did something bad. And so, boom, I'm going to punish you. No, see, that's not what he's doing. And that's sometimes what people think about this. They're like, God's going to punish the second and the third and the fourth generation. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is, listen, you set something in motion, yeah, your kids are going to pay for that. Because that's how life works. It works like that with everything. So yeah, so now you've got a parent that's in prison, and you don't have your dad, let's say, to raise you. You, have to, you suffer. And now, without your dad raising you, you're left either for someone else to come in and raise you or to figure out life on your own. And can any of us figure out life on our own? No. We just make a bigger mess. All right? That's what God is talking about. Now, the, the contrast to that is the first part of, of the verse where it says he maintains faithful love to a thousand generations to those that follow him. Now, how does that work? It's the same thing. So if I love God, put God first, live for God my whole life, okay? It's not like God goes to, to Cooper and says, your daddy was so awesome, I'm giving you ten extra blessings today. That's really not how it works. Now, he could do that, okay, if he wants to, but what we're talking about here is more of, I start the dominoes. Are you with me? So by putting these things in place, what have I done? I've tried to create a household where God is first. And when you try to create a household where God is first, and you love God, and you love your neighbor, what is the normal domino effect result? You create a household where people love God and love their neighbors. Are you all with me on this? All right. So, if you understand that, then the sin's effect, okay? And that's kind of what I've already been talking about, all right? So, the effect of sin, all right, is multifaceted, like we've been talking about. Mistrust in God, misplaced desire, it leads to disobedience. This is why contentment is so important. 
and complaining is so disastrous. It indicates a lack of trust and a desire for something else, which will ultimately lead you to rebellion and disobedience. What was wrong with the Israelites in the book of Numbers when they were in the wilderness? They constantly complained because they were not content, because they did not trust who? God. So they didn't trust God. They had other desires, and that led to rebelliousness and disobedience, treason against the king. Okay? Now, as, as we continue to think through the consequences of this, all right, you can think about David's sin with Bathsheba. All right? When David sinned with Bathsheba, okay, he took another man's wife. That's adultery. Then she got pregnant. Well, you see, that's just a domino effect of sleeping with someone. Yeah, it doesn't happen every time, I know. Okay? But that's the way it's supposed to work, okay? So you now have a baby coming. Uh-oh, we got a problem because uh, the husband's still alive. Okay, we'll fix that. I'm the king. Kill him. Okay, so what are we doing now? We're compounding our sins. All right? The dominoes already started. You can't take back what you did. You can't take your sin back, people. David could not take back, no matter how much he wished he could, he could not take back the fact that he sent his soldiers to go get Bathsheba, brought her to her, his bedroom, and slept with her. You can't take it back. When Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, you can't take it back. This is why people get confused over this. It says that Esau sought repentance, but he didn't find it. It says that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. What you've got to understand is that Esau set in motion and Jacob set in motion a series of events. The dominoes have started. The snowball is rolling. You can't take it back. See, he's already given up his birthright. I can't get it back. It doesn't matter if I like the stew or didn't like the stew. It's done with. Later on, when he deceives his dad, okay, Jacob again, all right, for the blessing from his father, once his father blesses him, he can't take it back. That's not the way it works. The dominoes have started. The snowball is rolling. Can't take it back. So David, what happens with David? So once David has started the snowball rolling, he can't take it back. So he's going to try to fix it. So how is he going to try to fix it? Well, I'm going to get rid of the man. That's the obstacle. Well, it really wasn't the, the real obstacle, but humanly speaking, that's how he saw it. So he got rid of him. And so then she doesn't have a husband anymore, so now he can marry her. Okay, so he marries her. All right? All right. Well, God says, now here's where God intervenes. All right? Now, the baby couldn't have lived, right? That would have been natural course, right? God intervenes, and now judgment comes on. Now, in this case, the baby does suffer the consequences, specific consequences, of God's specific judgment on David. So that's one aspect that does happen. But it doesn't end there. <clears throat> if you know anything about David's family after this, David has eight plus wives, okay? David has many sons. And as you read through the books of the Bible, the history books in Samuel, you will find that David's sons begin to turn against him. And David's sons begin to do the same things that he did. They take women that aren't theirs, okay? One of them took their sister and raped her. Not cool, not natural, not godly, sinful. One of them 
takes David's women and goes up and sleeps with them on the rooftop so everyone can see. Where are these boys getting this idea about how to treat women? From their father. You see, David started the snowball rolling by how he treated women. That's where his boys learned it. They didn't have to go look it up. They didn't have the internet back then. They got it from David. He started the snowball rolling. David was a man of war. Okay, For years before he became king, he was chased around in the wilderness by Saul and his armies. And David had his own band, hundreds of men. He had his own little army. David was a warrior. David killed lots of people. That's why God didn't let him build the temple. Too much blood. Okay, he had blood on his hands. Where did his boys learn about war, about deception, about women? They learned this from David. Okay? This is what we're talking about. This is the snowball effect of sin that we're dealing with here. What you set in motion is going to continue. So I don't know all the sins you've committed in your life, right? But if other people are involved, you set something in motion with them. Okay? This is why the tragedy okay, of, of a person being raped, okay, it doesn't end if somebody confesses it and repents. Okay? We'll talk about that in a second. But there's a snowball effect. Somebody is still suffering. Th this person needs help as well. They need a burden lifted from them. And praise the Lord, Jesus does come into our picture here, right? And so one of the things we've got to understand is that this continues to snowball all through the Bible, okay? And so the prophets, like Isaiah, he describes people who drag their sin along behind them on cords, okay? I just want you to think about that, all right? And so if you've if you got your sin, whatever that is, and it's like you're dragging it along wherever you go, you can't get rid of it. Now, imagine you got a, a backpack, and now it's too heavy. So you take the backpack off, and you tie a rope around you, and tie it to the backpack, and tie it to you. So wherever you walk, what are you dragging behind you? The backpack, okay? And so, wherever you go, you're kind of leaving a path. Like, picture a snowy place, right? If you're walking in the snow, and you're dragging the backpack behind you, then you're making a path, right? And that's what sin is doing. It's making this path, and it's destructive, and it's adding to this whole messed up world that we live in. How do we undo all of this? Isaiah was saying that we're dragging this along. We can no longer distinguish good and evil. You can't tell dark from light. You can't tell oppression and justice. That sounds just like Romans 1. Paul says that we keep on sinning because we don't acknowledge God. We try to bury who God is. Why are we trying to bury who God is? Romans 1 doesn't say that people don't have any idea about God. It actually says the opposite. It says that God has been revealed. Everybody knows there's a God, all right? And what we do is we try to bury it and cover it up. And then what does that do? We become blind. We become corrupted. We become perverse. And we corrupt and pervert everything we touch. And the whole universe becomes corrupt. That's the problem with our governments, Right? They got corrupt people in them, right? So, if no intervention occurs, sin will continue to pervert and twist the perceptions and decisions of generation after generation. And so you can end up in a place that if this continues, just think about it. 
After 50 years, what's the place going to look like? After 100 years, what's the place going to look like? Complete darkness. You wonder why some places are filled with witchcraft and child sacrifices? Because for year after year after year, this is what has happened. The mind has become more and more darkened. Perversion has increased. They can't tell their left from their right, the right from the wrong, justice from oppression. They don't know anything because they're literally completely blind spiritually. And so they need the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Romans says it's so beautiful are the feet, which actually he's quoting from Isaiah. The feet of the people who bring the good news of the gospel. So, once unleashed... Okay, now here's something for you to understand. So once you've unleashed this domino effect, this snowball, okay, that sin has got to go somewhere. All right, now this is going to tie us back to Leviticus and then to Jesus, all right? That sin has got to go somewhere. The burden of that sin, all right? It's got to be removed, washed away, carried away. It's got to go somewhere, okay? You can bear it yourself, so you keep carrying your backpack around. You keep dragging your sin around, all right? That's one option. One option is you keep carrying it around, all right? There's another option, okay? It can be shifted to another person or another thing, all right? So maybe I could drop my backpack off at the table, I guess, and now the table has, has my sin, right? And it's just sitting on there, right? But it's still there, right? Or you could come along and you could take it off me, right? And you could carry it. You all with me? But it's still somewhere, right? All right. Now, God doesn't just forgive sin. He bears it, he washes it, and then he removes it. That's what Jesus does. So, the sacrifice. Alright? So let's talk about the sacrifices. Remember, the verse we read in Leviticus is that Aaron is going to put his hands on this animal and confess the sins. Why are they doing that? Because the sin's got to go somewhere. You see, you're carrying all this sin. It's got to go somewhere. Alright? Now, when God told him to build the, the tabernacle, he did that so that he could meet with them, all right? And so if you look at this picture with the, the fire coming out of it, okay, th this is like the Shekinah glory. This is God consuming the sacrifice. This is God meeting with his people. Now imagine for a minute, okay, that you're back a couple thousand years ago, and you're in one of these tents. See, all the people, they camped out in these tents. Okay, all the tribes, you can go read this in the Bible. They had all the tribes around the four different sides, all right? And in the middle is the tabernacle where the sacrifices are brought every single day because people sin. How often? Every single day. So there's sacrifices offered every single day. Sometimes numerous ones, okay? Always morning and night, but sometimes like lots and lots of animals. All right, so if you're in your tent, okay, what are you going to see all the time? This fire, these sacrifices, and then when God shows up, boom, okay, you see this big thing. Now, all right, if you look at the, the tabernacle on the next slide, all right, you will see, okay, that there's all these different parts to the tabernacle, all right? So down here in the bottom of the screen, you see uh, this purple covering area. That is to enter in. There's only one doorway in. You have to come in that way, okay? Then a little further up, you'll see that there, uh, there's an altar there. There are some tables to cut up the animals, and there's a wash basin there, 
All right. So we're going to offer sacrifices there. Um, they're going to wash themselves, the priests, etc. Uh, and then you get to the actual part that is called the tabernacle, right? This part here, it's got a, a fence around it, but the actual little box in the middle, that's the tabernacle, okay? Now, inside the tabernacle, um, go to the tabernacle cutaway, <clears throat> all right? Inside the tabernacle, you will see... No, it says tabernacle cutaway on the slide. Just click it. All right, so inside the tabernacle, okay, if you can kind of see this, um, what you have is, is you have a big candle. You have big candles, okay, that just blew everything. It, it's also going to completely wreck the audio. The recording. So <clears throat> you'll have to turn that. Oh yeah, I don't know. No, I need that back up. It's not now, is it? No. No. It is? <clears throat> All right. Um, yeah, we're probably going to have to go without the projector for a minute. So in the inside the tabernacle, okay, so when you come in, you have a couple of different things that are there. So you have those candles, okay, which are, are lit and they're, they're shining light, okay? Then you have a table that has uh, bread on it, all right? Then there's a little altar area, probably about this size, where they had the incense, and that was like the prayers of the people going up to God. And then there's this curtain, all right? The curtain, no one ever goes through the curtain, except one time a year on the Day of Atonement. On the other side of the curtain, okay, that the high priest goes through one time a year on the Day of Atonement, is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had the Ten Commandments in it. It had Moses' stick that got flowers on it. And it had some manna from the wilderness. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were these two big cherubim, these angel-type things, okay? And in between them, it's called the mercy seat. And once a year, the priest would bring blood, and he would put it there for the forgiveness of the people. Okay? So... <clears throat> When the priest is working on this, all right, thank you. You're my new tech crew person. <clears throat> so you can see all that in this cutout, all right? And so the curtain right here is the one that they never went through, okay, except once a year on the Day of Atonement. So they only came in here, all right? So like, for instance, in the Gospels, when Zechariah went in and he was going to um, offer incense to God, uh, the sacrifice, that was going to be right here, okay? He would get to come up to right here, just outside this curtain, okay? And that is as close as you could ever get. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about uh, John the Baptist's dad, when the angel showed up to him, all right, and said he was going to have a kid, and he laughed basically and said, yeah, right, we're way too old, and, and um, how am I going to know this? 
And the angel's like, uh, dude, you got an angel talking to you. That's how you're going to know this. And now shut up. You ain't talking until you get your kid. All right? That's basically what happened. And so here's the thing. This is why this was such a big deal. Because how often do you get to come in here? You don't. And so this is like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And for them, this is the closest you would ever get to God, if you will. Because where does God show up? Right here. Okay? Except you can't see that because the curtain's all the way. All right? So he gets to come right to here, put some incense there, the prayers of the people going up to God. listen outside. And tradition has it that they tied a rope around his foot. If those bells stop, that means God killed him. And you don't go in there, because if you go in there, what happens to you? You die. And so they pull him out by the rope. Now, I don't know if or when that ever happened, but why is that such a big deal? Because what cannot be in the presence of God? sin and god is there see that's what this whole meeting place is about you got to prepare yourself so how do you prepare yourself you prepare yourself by washing yourself by confessing your sin by sacrificing those animals and then all through the year they would put blood on the altar okay why to take away sin to stop some of the snowball effect Now, as they did that, year after year, they didn't take away anything. Go to the high priest garments. Okay? The high priest, normally, when he goes in, he has this whole outfit on. Now, we're not going to go through all these pieces. I just want to show you something, okay? So he would wear this very nice thing. He'd be dressed to the nines, very fancy outfit. But on the Day of Atonement... Not so. Next slide. The Day of Atonement, that's what he wears. The same as all the other priests, pretty much. And here's a couple of things I want you to understand. When you go before God, it's not going to matter who you are. Everybody is on equal footing. The high priest had the, the highest, most special job you could ever have because he got to offer sacrifices, and once a year he go into the the holy of holies, the most holy place. But when you're going to meet with God, does God care about your title? Does God care if you're president of the United States? Vice president? President of Iran, Iraq, blah, 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 blah. No, see, when you go before God, okay, you are a human being. And all human beings are created in the image of God. Out of dirt and we will return to dirt. So see, all this elevation in society, this is why when James talks about don't give favoritism to the rich person. Does God? No. See, we're all on evil, even playing field with God. And so they come to God on the same playing field, okay? <clears throat> that curtain, okay? Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. When Jesus died... It says, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. That curtain, which only was ever able to go through once a year, was suddenly ripped in half, tore apart, 
done. Now, everybody could see in there. Wait a minute. Only the high priest is supposed to go in there one time. We can all see in there now. Why? Because Jesus opens the way for everybody to be with God. You don't have to go through a high priest. You don't need to go confess your sins to a priest. You confess your sins to God. Now, in Leviticus 16, it talks about this interesting thing where they lay their hands on one animal, a goat, and then they lay their hands on an, an, another goat, and, and that goat goes into the wilderness. This is the goat picture, if you will, where they're, they're putting their hands on it. Now, when they do that, what is it about? It's about transferring the sin. Remember, I told you the sin's got to go somewhere, right? right? You, you've set it in motion. It's a snowball. It's dominoes. Okay, it's got to go somewhere. Okay, so they're transferring, okay, symbolically, the sin, all right? And it goes onto the animal, and then it is either killed and the blood put on stuff, all right? Or at the Day of Atonement, one of them is sent away. All right, now this gets very complex. There's lots of debates about all these different things, and we're not going to discuss all those. But people often use the term scapegoat, okay, um, which may or may not be accurate. But the point is that they call this a scapegoat because he is sent out into the wilderness to bear everybody's sins instead of you bearing it. So the backpack's been taken off you, put on the goat, and now the goat is sent away. Now, do you want your sin to come back? No, you don't. So they would drive this beast out into the wilderness somewhere, and tradition has it that actually sometimes they would drive him to a cliff and make sure he got run over the cliff. Okay? Why? Because what, what don't they want coming back? Their sin. Okay? Now, so this is going on, and this was done every how often? Every year. Okay, good job. All right? So every year this is occurring. Why? Because the mess of sin continues to snowball. But here's the deal. Did all these sacrifices fix the whole world? No, they didn't. And this is where the Savior comes in. Okay? We needed a Savior, all right? Because all of those sins kept continuing to happen. And the effects of those sins continued to snowball. Okay? And so... Jesus shows up as the Savior. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. So, Jesus becomes... The one. Now, in the very beginning, if you can remember back that far today, we mentioned Passover and now Day of Atonement. Okay? At Passover, Jesus is the lamb who is slain for the sins of the world and he dies on the cross. Okay? Day of Atonement, there is another side of that. Some think that Jesus is the scapegoat. He carries away your sins. Okay? And that may be. All right? The other is the idea that there's also God coming to judge and set things proper the way they're supposed to be. In other words, go back to our little house that's all messed up. How do we get the house back in order? We don't want the crayons everywhere. We don't want the spill OJ in the car, but we want all that picked up, right? How do we reclean the house? It's got to be clean, okay? 
And so on the Day of Atonement, everything is set back in order, all right? It's clean. The house is clean. It's set back in order for a new year, and you kind of get a fresh start, all right? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, it says that a new and living way he, Jesus, has opened for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh. So Jesus provides this new way of access with God. You don't have to go to the tabernacle. You don't have to wait for the priest to go through all this stuff. Instead, we have a direct access through Jesus now to the Father. And that brings us salvation. Hebrews 9, 12 to 14 says that Jesus entered the most holy place once for all. Did he go every year? No, he went once. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So, you've got sin? Jesus takes it away. You're carrying around this baggage? Jesus will take the baggage from you. Okay? You have everything that needs to be made clean, Jesus will make it clean for you. That's what Jesus comes and does. Because you can't fix the domino problem, and you can't fix the snowball problem. You need someone to stop the snowball and unpack it and melt it. You need someone to reset up all the dominoes and make them the right way. That's what you need. And you can't do that, and I can't do that. But Jesus can do that. And that's why it's so important what Jesus came and did. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, it says, This man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? That means he was finished again. And it means he's in the position of power and authority. He finished what he came to do. He finished what you and I can't do. So on the Day of Atonement, as they sacrificed the animal every year, and the, the priest did the sacrifice and put the blood, and they sent one away, Jesus comes and says, I lift your burdens. I'll take it. I'll cleanse you. I'll take all this. I'll give you a fresh start. I'll redo it all. And when I come back, trumpet blows and you see me in the clouds and my kingdom is completely and fully set up all the dominoes will be upright there will be no snowballs and only Donald Craig and everything will be the way it's supposed to be there will be no orange juice in the carpet the crayons will be where they're supposed to be everything will be the way it was created to be so Leviticus to Hebrews Old Testament to New Testament how it affects your life is you need this thing fixed. You need to be cleansed. First John chapter 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is written by the Apostle John, and it's written to believers. But interestingly enough, it has some of these same terminologies coming out of this sacrifice system, this cleansing. That's what God does. That's what some of these sacrifices were about. Okay? So you continue as a Christian to sin sometimes. And you messed stuff up. You started the dominoes going again. We just picked them up. And there you go, knocking them down again. What do you do about that? 
you confess. The word confess means to admit. Okay? Now, that's a very important word because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are sins that they say cannot be forgiven. All right? Now, let me just cut through the chase with you. Generally speaking, here's what they're talking about. The reason a sin can't be forgiven is because the Old Testament calls it a high-handed sin. The reason it's not forgiven is because you refuse to humble yourself and admit that you sinned. So if you would humble yourself and admit that you sinned, it could be what? Forgiven. Are you with me on this? So... The word confess means to admit. So what do you do? You admit your sin. You confess your sin. Okay? Who makes the, the sacrifice? Well, Jesus makes the sacrifice for the sin. And here's the third part. Because the sacrifice is not synonymous with forgiveness. So you confess. Jesus sacrifices. And then guess what? The Father can forgive. And what does forgive mean? It's let go. It's released. Are you all with me on this? That's how it works together. Now, does that mean everything is completely without consequences? Nope. Because, remember, this is why I spent so much time dealing with the nature of what sin is to begin with. What have you already started the ball rolling? Whatever that is, right? Whatever that sin was. You've already started an effect. So there's a personal level. This is why Jesus has to come back again, guys. Okay? There's a personal level that your sin gets wiped away. But guess what? You started the snowball going. And that's all got to get undone somehow. And it doesn't all get undone the day you get saved. That doesn't all get undone the day you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin. It doesn't get all undone the day you confess some sin. Okay? It doesn't get all undone the, the day the guy in prison says, um, You're right, God. I robbed a bank. I was wrong. I was living in rebellion. I shouldn't have done it. Okay? That doesn't give the person that they stole the money from back their money, right? It doesn't make the person they shot come back to life, does it? No, it doesn't. You see, when do you have to wait for all of that to happen? When Jesus comes back. Are you with me? So you see how the Day of Atonement connects with when Jesus comes back again in the future. Some of those things, the dominoes won't be set back upright until Jesus comes back. Does that all make sense to you guys? All right? So... My exhortation to you today is it depends on where you're at. If you've never had your sins forgiven, if you aren't a child of God, listen, Jesus came from heaven to earth to offer himself, to have his blood. His blood was not just sprinkled in the tabernacle. See, they never took Jesus' blood and put it in that tabernacle thing, did they? No, no, no. It says in, Roman, or in Hebrews 9 that we just read that Jesus' blood was sprinkled in the heavenly tabernacle. The Holy Spirit... If you don't believe in the Trinity, this is one of the coolest verses, the one that um, we read a few uh, minutes ago in um, Hebrews chapter 9, I think it was verse 13, that the Spirit gives the offering of the blood of Jesus to the Father. That's the Trinity, people, all right? And when that happens, Jesus' blood wasn't sprinkled on the earthly tabernacle, it was sprinkled in the heavenly tabernacle. What does that do? Well, that sets the whole world right. As soon as Jesus comes back, He'll put that into effect. So, if you haven't had your sins forgiven, you need to get right with God and ask God to forgive you of your sins and realize that, yeah, you haven't been trusting him. You've had your own desires, and so that led you to be a rebellious punk. That's the bottom line. 
you're a traitor. You're treasonous, right? And the penalty is what? Death. <clears throat> you confess that. God comes in. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He makes you new inside, starting with you. Now you can't undo every single thing you've ever done, but now you can start to live differently. For some things, you can start to make amends, okay? That's called restitution. You can fix some of the wrongs you did. You can't fix all of them, all right? If you're a believer already, 1 John 1.9 is your verse. You should memorize that. Burn that thing in your brain, all right? Because when you sin, you still do the same thing. But confess it. Admit it to God, all right? He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive it. He'll cleanse it all. Why? Because Jesus already went and put his blood as the sacrifice to undo your domino mess, all right? Now you say, oh, then I can just keep doing it. If you, if you think like that, I'm just going to be blown. I don't know that you're saved. All right? That is not how a Christian thinks. Okay? That comes up in Romans, and Paul says, absolutely not. All right? That is a complete misunderstanding. I heard, I heard someone one time, and uh, they, they were being all like violent. They were like threatening to stick someone with a knife and whatnot, and they claimed to be a Christian and all this. And I was like, dude, what is wrong with you? And he's like, whatever, God will forgive me. And I'm like, you don't understand the gospel. And he's like, don't tell me that. You don't know me. I was like, okay, I know you enough, obviously, because you just said you're going to stick someone with a knife and God will just forgive you so it's okay. No, you have no understanding of the gospel, okay? That is complete garbage. So <clears throat> you don't take Jesus' blood and just spray it everywhere and do, do what you want. That's not how it works. And I say that for this reason. He's coming back. Matthew 7, 21 says there's going to be people that prophesied in his name, cast out demons... They think they're saved, and they're probably going to be very confused when he says, you're not a Christian, go to the lake of fire. So check yourself, people. Make sure you're following after God. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning, and we thank you so much that Jesus came to die on the cross for us. We thank you so much that um, we don't have to go through this annual day of atonement and sacrifice these animals because Jesus came, sacrificed himself. He is our atoning sacrifice. God, we thank you that we have the Holy Spirit that you offer to every one of your children. The Holy Spirit will come into our lives and will then be the one that can run our lives and we no longer have to give in to the power of sin because the power of the Holy Spirit is so much greater. God, forgive us for the sins that we've committed. Forgive us for this past week, for, for not trusting you. Forgive us for desiring things that are opposite of what you want. Forgive us for being disobedient. And acting in a, a treasonous way, like traitors. Renew a right spirit in us, God. Cleanse our heart and hands that we might really see you. Show us yourself this week, God. As Moses prayed, show us your glory. As we sang earlier today, God, that we might really understand and, and grasp what this means. And for those that might not know you as Savior, God, I pray they call out to you right where they are. I ask you to forgive them of their sins be their Lord and Savior, so they can become part of your family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.